Good morning and welcome to ASL's HR in 10. At 10. I'm Jason Perry. And I'm Kimberly Bradshaw. And each week we bring you up to speed on what's going on in the world of human resources and employment law. Kimberly, we're kind of in uh, party conference season and I sort of feel that I, I, I try not to mix politics and HR too much. But it's difficult not to this time of year, isn't it? Well, it is, particularly when there's so much talk about the national living wage. Uh, there's lots of different calls for that. And whilst it's great for individuals, uh, I should explain that the call is for it to go up to £9.42. And the national living wage is what is the statutory minimum for everyone over 23 and I do think there's a lot of confusion about statutory minimum and statutory living because they blurred yes. didn't they but you know we know organizations that are going to struggle financially with yes. that I'm quite glad you called it the living wage because I always get it wrong and call it the minimum wage um, and I mean to all intents and purposes it is the minimum wage because it's what we as employers are obliged to pay as you say anyone over 23 23 and over now gets that currently it's 891 if i remember correctly this would be horribly embarrassing if i got that wrong wouldn't it no bang on jason superb always good to know um and the increase that's being proposed um as you say nine pound 42 um i think it's a 5.7 percent increase now this hasn't been approved it hasn't been signed off but all the um, pundits are saying Boris is likely to announce this within the next couple of weeks. And therefore, I'm kind of expecting we're going to see this in April next year. Mm. Yes. And what's interesting is uh, Labour are, have voted on proposing £15 national living wage, which is just going to be impossible for many organisations. And Keir Starmer, is, he's at a slightly more reasonable 10. So wholly in support of it, wholly in support of getting people off you know, benefits. But it's got to be affordable, hasn't it? Isn't isn't it a lovely point when you can say that a political party has voted for £15 an hour, but their leader doesn't agree? Um, it's uh, Something's not quite right there. But yeah, as you say, I mean, I, I recall, and I can't remember which party, I think it might have been all mainstream parties, were aiming to get to £10 an hour by the end of this parliament, I think was a projection, if I recall correctly, at the last general election. Um, so £9.42 now, it's, it's quite a hike. And if you want to break it down, I did read somewhere, I think it was the third biggest increase since the 2008 crash, mm. um, which, you know, when you think that's only 12, 13 years ago, perhaps isn't that significant per se. I think the big thing is doing it now as businesses are trying to navigate their way out of the pandemic crisis and really just getting things back together, aren't they? And uh, I think potentially this is quite a big challenge for a lot of them. It is. Also, what I think is interesting about this is uh, the Office of National Statistics figures. Uh, I think they were, I can't remember uh, what time period they were. I think it was up to August. Mm. Uh, yes, it would have been up to August. The um, average pay increase across the UK was 4.8%. So to go to 57 is, you know, a good figure above that. Yes, 
And even that is possibly misleading because this year's figures are affected by last year's low point because of the furlough. So I, I think it's quite difficult to take that too yeah, seriously is. till we yeah. get a more rounded period of time to measure that on. Mm. Um, I think the other thing that strikes me on this is whilst we talk about it being potentially difficult for some smaller employers, there are many organisations that have already gone beyond it as a direct result of the current labour shortages. We're seeing quite a lot of people who traditionally would have operated quite close to the minimum wage now saying, actually, we're going to pay 50 pence a pound above um, the living wage. Mm. And, you know, pretty much everyone I talk to is bemoaning the, the skill shortage. Yes. Uh, and, you know, we've seen the impact of that on the uh, HGV drivers and the petrol crisis and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but who was it yes, um, that has been calling for a, a, a visa tax for businesses to try and overcome this? Very, very interesting one. That was, and I forget his name, Lord Somebody, who is the chairman, I believe, of Next Retail. But he's also, uh, I think he's a Conservative peer um, and therefore was raising it at the Conservative Party conference. Um, fascinating idea. They, and he's quite openly admitting that next, the whole of the retail industry has major challenges in its logistics industry, as anyone who's tried to get to a petrol pump knows. Um, and what they're suggesting is a visa tax, and his suggestion is something like 7%. So you can still hire an overseas worker to do a job, but what you're doing is you're paying in tax roughly the difference between what it would you, you were able to hire a foreign worker for versus what you could attract a British worker if you were to invest in them and the skills and the development and the right wage to get them on board. Yes, and although I think that's a great idea, um, in one way I'm with Boris, not in a political way at all, um, no comment on my uh, political preferences, but he has been calling for there to be more of a focus on improving domestic skills, yes. and I think that's the way to go. We've talked so many times, haven't we, Jason, about um, the impact that the coronavirus has had particularly on the, the younger people mm. um and you know i talk to accountants lawyers ev any industry sector you you think of there's just not those skills there so yes. why not build the skills here rather than cost everyone you know have to pay a, mm. a tax to to get the people yes um, i think you've got some interesting things going on here obviously we're also seeing the universal credit um, around now drop by 20 pounds a week and one of the things and it's a very very difficult thing to talk about but in the world of employment we do see an awful lot of people who decline work because they are better off on benefits yeah. now that doesn't mean you want them to get less benefits but it is potentially an argument for trying to nudge wages up to create that differential so that people in work do earn more um and I guess if you can start doing that, we get some of those young people who are not in employment into work or into training, apprenticeship-based development to fill those gaps. And I think 
most employers, if they're not already looking at, must, must be looking at apprenticeships as to how they fill this new void that we're going to have to deal with. Well, that kind of correlates with what Rishi Sunak was announcing earlier in the week, doesn't it? And, you know, whilst I think these schemes are great, they, in my personal experience, and that's not, you know, a benchmark at all, but in my experience, if you want somebody to become, you know, a trade or, uh, you know, an engineer or something like that, anything sort of practical, they've got great apprenticeship schemes. But if you're in professional services or a more office-based role, the apprenticeship schemes are so generic as to not be helpful. Um, so I think, you know, it, we need to put a lot more focus on yes. building skills internally I, at home. I think the difficulty, as somebody who's worked quite a bit in the apprenticeship world, um, I think it works well for big employers. Um, small employers perhaps have their work cut out to make a scheme work for them. And we've, we've taken on people under the apprenticeship scheme and it can be brilliant. It can work really well. Not least because you can show your people you want to invest in them. I think it goes wrong when you try and exploit it at the cheapest wage rate you can get as a way of bringing in cheap labour and not taking the apprenticeship seriously. And that gets the whole scheme a bad name. But while, while touching on this, I'm looking at the time and conscious that we're uh -oh. going to fit this in 10 minutes. But there's one other bit I wanted to pick up on, which I haven't seen before. So I'm going to ask you, have you heard of youth mobility visas? Well, until we talked about it earlier, absolutely not. And, you know, youth mobility scheme has been in, in place for years. And who's heard of it? Well, exactly. Um, and... What's happened very, very quietly this year, the government has signed deals with two new countries, which I recall Iceland and India. Yes. But this has added to many countries that this scheme already exists with. And apparently somebody who's between 18 and 30 can apply for a youth mobility visa and come and work in the UK for up to two years. I can tell you're being distracted by cats there. No, I'm not. I was just looking at for the article to see ah, if it was really okay. in place. Um, but it looks like a really great scheme. And what's in the back of my mind right now is, are we going to see Europe added to the youth mobility scheme? Youth mobility well, visa. that's what they're calling for, isn't it? I mean, at the moment, just checking here, we've got the ones that... Are, uh, we have an arrangement with already are Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. Interesting mm. mix. Uh, and yes, as you said, now India and, and Iceland are, yes. are added on. But, but uh, as a way of tackling some of the um, short-term labour shortages in some areas and bringing youth in from abroad, it's a very, very interesting idea. But Kimberly, this is HR in 10, um, and today it's been HR in 11. As always. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been lovely, but for now we will wrap up and we will look forward to seeing you all same time next week. Goodbye. See you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.